emerging from the economy of the Industrial Revolution. An economy confined to and limited by the Earth's physical resources into the economy in mind, in which there are no bounds on human imagination, and the freedom to create is the most precious natural resource. Welcome to the Soul of Enterprise, Business in the Knowledge Economy, sponsored by SAGE, transforming the way people think and work so their organizations can thrive. I'm Ed Kless with my friend and co-host, Ron Baker, and on today's show, folks, we are thrilled to be interviewing tax policy expert, Dan Mitchell. How's it going during the, the, the Great Suppression in California, Ron? Uh, the lockdown continues, Ed, but um, I am so excited to have Dan Mitchell on. I've been a long time a follower of his, and he's an expert in tax policy, so kind of right up our alley since we've done some shows on that. Yes, and, and perfectly positioned for what's been going on today. But as by way of introduction, Dan Mitchell is a public policy economist in Washington. He's been a senior fellow at the Cato Institute, a senior fellow at the Heritage Foundation, an economist for Senator Bob Packwood and the Senate Finance Committee, and a director of the Tax and Budget Policy at Citizens for a Sound Economy. I love this. He has been called the high priest of light tax and small state libertarianism, which was meant as an insult, but he's embraced as a badge of honor and also the guardian angel of taxpayers. Dan was born in Mount Kisco, New York, in my home state, and he got his BA and master's in economics and apparently also a transfusion where, because he bleeds bulldog red now from the University of Georgia. He is, pursued his PhD at George Mason University and his work has been published in the Wall Street Journal, New York Times, Washington Times, Washington Post, National Review, and dozens of other major publications. He's appeared on all the major TV networks, and we are so honored to have Dan Mitchell join us today on The Soul of Enterprise. Welcome to The Soul of Enterprise. Glad to be with you guys. Well, first, Dan, just how are you doing personally in this crazy time before we get into tax policy? Well, I'm bored. Uh, the only time I get to leave my house is going to like Home Depot or to the supermarket. Uh, I, I'm missing out. I'm playing softball and doing fun things like that. So uh, it's, a, it's a frustrating time. And what makes it doubly frustrating is that the crowd in Washington is going hog wild with our money. Uh, in some cases, I, you, you could argue with legitimacy, but they're definitely also trying to take advantage of this crisis. Uh, to pursue long-held policy objectives to expand the size and scope of the federal government. Well, and let's talk a little bit about that. You've, you've even answered really my next question, which is your overall evaluation of the federal government's reaction to the policy. But I, I have this image of when they were putting the, this legislation together and you know the, them, them trying to come up with it, and all of a sudden somebody sitting in front of a word processor going, oh, give me the file from five years ago where we were trying to get this involved. Let's just tack that in as well. Is, it, I mean, it, it's just a crazy mishmash of stuff, isn't it? It is. It's very much actually like the Patriot Act back in 2001, where they took all these bills that were sitting on the shelf that were judged not to be worthwhile, and then they put them all into a piece of legislation. And just like today, you could argue that maybe given the circumstances, some of those provisions would have been worthwhile. But we also wound up giving the federal government lots of authority that I think without the crisis mentality, uh, we would have had second thoughts about. And likewise, today, uh, the federal government and state governments are, in effect, uh, imposing an economic lockdown. 
you can argue that therefore they should compensate businesses and people that are being locked out of productive activity. Uh, you know, that's a legal argument. I'm an economist. Uh, I just know that we're running up a lot of debt. We're making government a lot bigger. Uh, some of it, I guess, is unavoidable. My number one concern, though, is I don't want a permanent expansion and the cost of government, and I fear very much that will be the long-run result of all this. It was just amazing. The first, uh, what was I think the first thing was $2.1 trillion, and then a few days later, it was another $2.3 trillion, and nobody batted an eyelash the, at, the, at the second $2.3 trillion, as if that it was, was just no big deal. There was conversation about the first $2.1, but then they had $2.3. It's like, oh, yeah, another trillion here. Well, part of it, I think, is panic. And, and I, I'm not blaming them even for panicking. This is a, uh, a hopefully less than once in a lifetime pandemic. Uh, it is critical. It is important that we somehow deal with it. Uh, if everyone was just behaving as normal, I'm sure we would have much higher infection rates, uh, much higher death rates. And so something had to happen. And I guess the federal government coming in and, and in effect acting as an income replacement. This isn't a traditional Keynesian stimulus. We know those don't work. This is more an, an emergency income replacement uh, vehicle. But again, they're using that to try to do all sorts of things that they uh, couldn't get away with in normal times. And one of the things that really worries me now is that the next bill that comes through, because I'm sure we'll have two or three more before this is over and done with, they're going to try to do a bailout of, uh, of some of the irresponsible blue states that have uh, promised all these lavish benefits to uh, government employee unions. And that would be a really reckless reward of fiscal irresponsibility. It would punish responsible states like Florida and Texas to reward irresponsible states like uh, California, New York, uh, Illinois, New Jersey. And, uh, and boy, that would really be a kick in the teeth to taxpayers, both at the state and federal level. Interesting enough, when I was, I was preparing for this, you, you refuted a, uh, a, a claim by Dana Milback at Washington Post. He, and he, I can't believe he said this with a straight face or wrote this with a straight face, but he said that our, our response to the coronavirus was hampered because government was too small. Yeah, what was really remarkable wasn't that he made the claim. I mean, that's a sort of a standard uh, uh, arrow in the quiver for uh, folks on the left. What really shocked me was that to then justify that argument, he cited East Asian economies like Singapore and South Korea uh, and Taiwan. And if you look at the data, which isn't hard to find at all, it's on the IMF website, all sorts of places you can find the data, those jurisdictions all have much smaller burden of government than we do. It's just that because they have small governments, because in effect the entire energy of government is focused on a few core competencies, uh, they do a better job than we do. So we spend more money, but we spend it mostly on irrelevant things. And whatever little expertise there is in government is spread out so far and wide that when there's a genuine need to do something, our public health bureaucracies have gotten in the way instead of helping, like has been the case in some of these other jurisdictions where government is smaller and more focused. 
and yet this the states themselves which are the 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 quote smaller governments here and and more equivalent to things like singapore and these other places their their fiscal burdens as you said run the gamut and i'm quoting from your column today you say states with heavier fiscal burdens are accounting for ever higher levels of debt especially unfunded liabilities and perhaps we can come back to that while also causing ever greater exodus of taxpayers to other states in the long run, this is a re recipe for a fiscal crisis, since it's hard to give w away lots of money as if there weren't enough taxpayers to, for that uh, uh, Um And then what, with the help of the coronavirus, the long run may have already arrived. Can you unpack that? There's a lot there. Yeah, well, if you look at some of the uh, the research that's been done uh, across the gamut, it doesn't matter whether it's uh, more market-oriented people or more government-oriented people, everyone realizes that there are certain states who have massive problems with unfunded liabilities. We're talking anywhere from three to $6 trillion, depending on your assumptions of how uh, things like interest rates and future rates of return and things like that, that I'm sure you're familiar with. So we have this giant problem. It's really acute in uh, mostly blue states like Illinois and New Jersey, but also in, in a couple of uh, reddish states like Kentucky has a and, and Louisiana, they have very underfunded pension plans. These are giant, in effect, multi-thousand dollar per capita liabilities in these states. So think about it. You're a resident in New Jersey. You're already being taxed very harshly for a substandard package of services you're getting from state government. It's not like, it's not like you're getting lavish, wonderful government services in New Jersey compared to say, if you were in Virginia or Florida or North Carolina, uh, and yet, you know that you have this ticking time bomb that's gonna result in just astronomically huge tax increases in the future. So you're already getting taxed a lot now for a very bloated public sector, and you have this fiscal sword of Damocles hanging over your, over your neck, uh, waiting to get you at some point in the future when politicians have to make good on all these ridiculous promises they've made to the government employee unions, which of course is just a standard corrupt deal where the politicians and the public employee union bosses sit in a room together and say, okay, we'll promise you X dollars in the future. You give us votes and campaign dollars now. They both win, but nobody's representing the interest of the taxpayers. And, and so we have this, this incredible problem in numerous states in our country. Uh, they seem to think that somehow there's always someone who can, who can pay it off, uh, but again, those taxpayers in New Jersey, in Illinois, in California, what are they doing? They're moving to states with better fiscal systems. Now, I think that's a good discipline. I want New Jersey politicians uh, to eventually feel the pinch from their irresponsible policies. I don't want taxpayers around the country to bail out irresponsible New Jersey politicians. And on that unfunded liabilities, I just want to make sure I have this right. A lot of those were caused by the guaranteed benefit pension plans that the state employees got. Is that correct? Yes. In most states, they have what are called defined benefit programs, uh, which means that the state of New Jersey will continue to use them as an example because they're such a, uh, an awful uh, case study. Uh, you work for the state of New Jersey. Uh, your union bosses have given contributions to the state politicians and they meet with those state politicians and say, okay, we want you to give our members uh, promises of, uh, of you know, X thousands of dollars per month when they retire. Now they're not setting aside the money, at least in New Jersey and Illinois, in some states they do. Some, you, know, you look at 50 states, you'll see 50 different approaches to whether or not they're responsible and, and in effect honest 
uh, with the way they run these pension systems. New York has a lot of problems, but my understanding is they actually have funded their pension system. So they're a lot better than New Jersey and Illinois. But in the states that don't have the, the, the legal funding requirement, uh, they make these promises, but they don't put aside any of the money. And, and sooner or later, just like we saw with Greece and other countries during the European fiscal crisis, sooner or later, you run out of people to pull the wagon because there are too many people riding in the wagon and you've imposed such high taxes, you've driven taxpayers out of the state. And, and I don't want that kind of irresponsible, short-sighted approach to be rewarded with a federal bailout. Yeah, because then the question becomes, is the, are the good people of Texas willing to bail out the good people of New Jersey, I suppose? So that's that's the challenge. But we are already against our first break. Want to remind you that you can get a hold of Ron or me by sending an email to asktsoe at verisage.com. Of course, the website is the soul of enterprise where you can see show notes as well as previews to upcoming shows. But right now, a word from our sponsor. Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America. Sage provides accountants with compliance, reporting, and analytic solutions to do more for their clients. These solutions include education programs such as the Sage Accountants Network Client Advisory Service Program. This program delivers the tools to create package, price, market, and deliver additional services to clients, increasing your profitability and delivering more value to your clients. Let Sage help you grow your business by visiting sageaccountantsnetwork.com. Have you ever read a book that changed your life? I sure have. Have you ever listened to an advertisement for a book so many times that you question the existence of God? Me too. Hello, I'm Greg Kite. I recorded the advertisement for Ron and Ed's book, The Soul of Enterprise Dialogues on Blah, 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 Whatever. And four years later, we're all tired of it, especially me. But thankfully, there's a solution. For just $10 a month, you never have to hear my voice again. For a commercial-free version of The Soul of Enterprise, go to patreon.com slash TSOE and subscribe now. We're always talking business. Talk to an expert. Call now, toll-free, 866-472-5790. That's 866-472-5790. Voice America Business Network. You are tuned into The Soul of Enterprise with Ron Baker and Ed Klass. To find out more about our show, visit us on the web at thesoulofenterprise.com. You can also chat with us on Twitter using hashtag AskTSOE. Now, back to The Soul of Enterprise. Well, welcome back, everybody. We're here with the co-founder of the Center for Freedom and Prosperity, Dan Mitchell. And Dan, that was a fascinating discussion about the state's uh, <laughs> uh, pension issue. But I kind of want to take you in a different direction, talk to you about tax policy, because I know that's one of your areas of expertise. When you look out and you see all the different types of tax systems we could have, a VAT tax, a national sales tax, a flat tax, some type of a consumption tax. If you were king for a day, and I know you'd probably turn down that role, what, what tax system do you favor? 
I guess I favor what we had before 1913, which is no broad-based tax at all at the uh, level of the federal government. Back then, we had a federal government that, by and large, kept itself within the confines that were uh, put together in the Constitution by our founders. Uh, we didn't have uh, all these federal departments and bureaucracies that we ha now have, all the entitlement programs. None of that stuff existed, and we managed to become the richest, most powerful country in the world. So my fantasy world is going back to uh, pre-1913 fiscal policy and not having the federal government doing much beyond national defense and a few other things that are listed in Article 1, Section 8 of the Constitution. Now, if you, in effect, pop my balloon and tell me my fantasy can't <laughs> come true, uh, and you say, okay, given the size of government we have right now, what's the least destructive way of financing it? Uh, then there's no question we should have a single rate consumption-based tax. Now, I say consumption-based tax as a public finance economist. And what consumption-based tax means to a public finance economist is a tax that doesn't penalize saving and investment relative to consumption. So yes, a, a consumption-based tax can be a national sales tax. It can be a value-added tax but it can also be something like a flat tax because what is a flat tax? It's taxing income only one time at one low rate. In effect, it's the different side of the coin from a national sales tax. A national sales tax taxes your income one time at one low rate when you spend it. A flat tax taxes your income one time at one low rate uh, when you earn it. So it's just a different collection point, a different collection mechanism but both systems would have a low marginal tax rate on productive behavior, and neither system would double tax saving and investing, uh, which is a major problem in our current tax system between the capital gains tax, the corporate tax, the double tax on dividends, and, and the death tax. You can be taxed as many as four different times on income you save and invest, which obviously creates a bias against capital formation. And by the way, every single economic, economic theory uh, even socialism, even Marxism, they all agree that capital formation is a key predicate for long-run growth. So, so a single-rate consumption-based tax of some kind, given where we are right now, I think the smart approach is to go with a flat tax because what's the worst thing that happens if you do a flat tax? You degenerate back to the current system. Uh, I'm all in favor, in theory, of something like a national sales tax, but you have to make sure that not only are you repealing the income tax, but you're also repealing the 16th Amendment, which of course authorized the income tax, and you're replacing it with language that's so ironclad that even Ruth Bader Ginsburg can't rationalize that an income tax is constitutional. And why do I make these strong conditions? Because I don't trust politicians. I think if we had some deal where they said we were gonna phase out the income tax and put in a national sales tax or VAT, what would happen is halfway through the phase out, they would say, oh, there's an, a national emergency. There are dandelions in people's lawn or something like that. And they would keep the income tax. We'd have the new consumption tax, sales tax or VAT. And then we'd wind up being like Western Europe with a gigantically expensive welfare state. So I don't want, the, the worst outcome would be to give politicians two major sources of revenue. It's bad enough that they have one. Right. No, I couldn't agree more. I mean, if you look at the history of the VAT tax in Europe, right, they started out pretty low and now look at their rates on top of their confiscatory income tax rates, it seems. And, and the thing to understand, because I've actually crunched all the data from the European Commission on this issue, the income tax burden in Europe today is harsher 
than it was when the value added tax were first proposed. So these people who think, oh no, you put in a value added tax uh, and that way we'll be able to lower uh, income taxes. No, that's not what happens. Instead, the, the politicians just push both rates as high as they can in order to grab more money so they can try to buy more votes, which is what politicians exist for. Right. Dan, is it true from a technical economic point of view that no matter what you call the alternative of that, a national sales tax, flat tax consumption, aren't all taxes at the end of the day, income taxes, because that's how most people have control over resources? All taxes are paid out of income. I suppose if you're, if you're nothing but a trust fund baby, you're paying taxes out of income that was earned by your you know, father or grandfather. Uh, but all taxes ultimately obviously have to be paid out of income, income that is earned at some point in time. Right. And what would you do with the corporate and capital gains taxes? The capital gains tax is pure double taxation. It should not exist. And in all sorts of countries around the world, including oddly enough, some places like Belgium, which you don't think of as being a tax haven, but lots of rich people from France move to Belgium uh, if, they, if they're expecting a large capital gain. But of course, places like Singapore and Hong Kong uh, don't have capital gains taxes. It, it's, it's pure double taxation under any sort of sensible analysis of a, a fiscal policy. Now the corporate tax, that's a little bit harder to figure out. Now remember earlier, I said that if you, if you immediately consume your after-tax income, uh, uh, there's no additional tax, but if you save and invest your after-tax income, you have the capital gains tax, the corporate income tax, the double tax on dividends and death tax. Now, in theory, when you're saving and investing your money, you're generating new income. So that new income should be taxed one time. And the one place to tax it is either at the corporate level or at the shareholder level, but you shouldn't tax it twice. So that then creates a, a sort of a wonky, dorky, tax nerd type debate that we sometimes have in Washington. Well, if we want to get rid of double taxation, uh, do we do it by, by getting rid of the corporate income tax or do we do it by getting rid of the uh, tax on dividend income? I've always been of the theory that I'd rather get rid of the dividend taxation and keep the corporate tax because you know, there are hundreds of thousands of shareholders for some big companies. Just from an administrative standpoint, is it easier to tax a mega company one time at the level of the company? Or do you wanna have the government trying to track down hundreds of thousands of shareholders and levying the tax on them? So, so but, but that's just my opinion the key thing is make sure any new income is only taxed one time. And so, yes, have a corporate tax or have a tax on dividends, but do not have. Right. Um, the corporate tax incidents debate. I, re I remember reading some things by Kevin Hassett, who I'm sure you know that he believes that almost nearly all of the corporate income tax burden is actually paid by the workers. What's your take on that? How much do the workers versus the shareholders versus the consumers pay of the corporate tax burden? This discussion to me is all about first order effects and second order effects. Obviously when you're levying a corporate income tax or for that matter, then taxing it again uh, through uh, the taxation of dividends at the individual level, that is being paid for by capital. However, 
what people like Kevin Hassett and other good economists do is they don't just look at that first order effect. They consider, well, the fact that we have this tax that is leading to less investment in our economy and the consequence of less investment means what? It means lower wages for workers. So, of course, if you're doing intelligent second order effect, third order, you know, just the indirect effects, broadly speaking, if you're considering those indirect effects of the corporate tax, of course, workers are paying a very heavy price. Now, it probably depends somewhat uh, by industry. It may also just depend by different countries. Are they exporting countries, importing countries? Are they capital inflow countries? Are they capital outflow countries? What's the level of domestic and international competition in different sectors of the economy? There's all sorts of variables that you can throw into the equation, but people like Kevin Hassett are right. The ultimate indirect effect of the corporate income tax is very, very negative for workers because what determines worker compensation? Worker compensation is ultimately dictated by productivity. What dictates productivity? It's ultimately driven by the amount of investment in the economy. So when you're taxing capital as the first order effect with a corporate income tax, the indirect effects are to basically kick workers in the teeth in the form of lower wages. Oh, amen. I, I wish more people understood exactly what you just said, because it seems to me like there's this feeling out there, oh, we can just keep taxing the corporations. And it's like, no, only people pay taxes. What's your... Well, you, you, want, you want me to give you some depressing uh, uh, analysis here? Sure. Having been in Washington for more than 30 years, almost every economist actually does understand that, including the economists who work for uh, the Democrats on the tax rating committees, including the Democrats who work uh, who worked for the Obama administration, who worked for the Bill Clinton administration. They understand it, but they don't really admit it out loud. And they justify violating that principle because, hey, we have to focus on inequality. We have to focus on making the rich pay. They understand it does damage, uh, but they just basically keep their mouth shut about it for the, for the good of the team. Right. Dan, I used to be really young and naive back when the, you know, Newt Gingrich house took over. And I really thought we were going to see some major tax reform. What is your assessment of the chance for like real tax reform, whether it's a flat tax or something else you think we'll ever live long enough to see it? I think you're more likely to see me starting in center field for the New York Yankees than we are to see a flat tax come out of Washington. Uh, you at the start of the show, it was mentioned that way back in the distant past, uh, I did a stint working for Senator Bob Packwood, uh, who was the ranking Republican on the Finance Committee. So I also served in addition to in his personal office, I served as the economist for the committee. Uh, and one thing I learned from that real world experience of working on Capitol Hill for a little while is that if you're on the tax writing committee, like my boss Packwood was, you in effect are one of the most powerful members of the House or the Senate. And when you're so powerful with a committee that has so much control over there are our 75,000 page tax code. Uh, in addition, of course, that those committees are in charge of trade issues and entitlement issues. Uh, so it's a very powerful committee to serve on. In effect, people, you don't have to hold a fundraiser. People come throw money at you. Uh, and, and why do they throw money at you? Because your committee's powerful. Why is it powerful? Because the tax code is complex. So think about it. Now, my boss, Bob Packwood, played a big role in the 86 Tax Reform Act. So I think he uh, had his heart in the right place. But if you're the average member of a tax writing committee, 
do you really want to turn your powerful committee into a relatively toothless oversight committee because you've basically taken the tax code out of the economy? No, you don't. Uh, the, a complicated, burdensome tax code is a great moneymaker for Washington, for the politicians, uh, for the lobbying community. Uh, Washington does not want, it's sort of like, if, if you, well, let me put it this way. Here's a very timely example. If you came up with a miracle cure for coronavirus, would you just give it away? Well, maybe you would because you're a nice person and we have a pandemic and stuff like that, but you probably would want to earn some profits for coming up with this miracle cure. Uh, you wouldn't just give it away. Well, likewise, politicians don't want to give away their control over the economy uh, that they can exercise by having control over the tax code. They should. It would be good for the country, but it's not good for them. And so, in effect, we would be asking politicians to do something good for us that's bad for them if they were to do fundamental tax reform. Right. No, I think I think you're exactly right on that. And it took me uh, it took me about a decade to learn that, Dan. But unfortunately, we're up against our next break. And folks, I'd like to remind you, if you want to contact Ed or me, send us an email to asktsoe at verisage.com. Check out show notes at thesoulofenterprise.com. We'll, we'll post full show notes with our interview with Dan, along with links to his work and his blog. And now we want to hear from our sponsors. The future of online TV is here. View exclusive content from your favorite talk radio hosts and new programs that you can't see anywhere else. Visit voiceamerica.tv today. Sage provides accountants with compliance, reporting, and analytic solutions to do more for their clients. These solutions include education programs such as the Sage Accountants Network Client Advisory Service Program. This program delivers the tools to create, package, price, market, and deliver additional services to clients, increasing your profitability and delivering more value to your clients. Let Sage help you grow your business by visiting sageaccountantsnetwork.com. Have you ever listened to an online radio show that changed your life? I'm required to say that I have. Have you ever stopped listening to an online radio show because the commercials were mind-numbingly repetitive? Of course you haven't because you're here right now. Look, you don't have to listen to me anymore. There's a commercial-free version of this show, and it only costs $10 a month. And for $15 a month, you get no commercials plus bonus content. Go to patreon.com slash TSOE, subscribe now, and be free. You're worth it. From the boardroom to you, Voice America Business Network. You are tuned into The Soul of Enterprise with Ron Baker and Ed Klass. To find out more about our show, visit us on the web at thesoulofenterprise.com. You can also chat with us on Twitter using hashtag AskTSOE. Now, back to The Soul of Enterprise. And we are back with the prolific Dan Mitchell. And Dan, I just, this is Ed again here. I, I wanted to just ask you one more coronavirus related question and then move on to a couple of other ran random topics. But what, 
what would have been better, assuming that they had we had to do something? I mean, I know this is politicians' logic, right? We must do something. My proposal is something, therefore we must do it. But what what should have been done, assuming we had to do something? Would it have been just direct deposits to individuals? I'll let you answer. Go from there. Well, I confess, I'm not sure what the right answer would be. If, if you just give money to individuals, in effect, compensation for them being knocked out of work, okay, that's great. The, you're providing emergency income replacement uh, for them, which is how I view this. It's not Keynesian stimulus. It's simply income replacement. But on the other hand, all the businesses out there, you know, they still have their rent and other expenses. Uh, they have no income coming in. So I understand why Marco Rubio and other senators focused on this uh, PPP program. And then, of course, you had that blank check to the Treasury Department, as well as what the Fed is doing to try to help out the, uh, the big corporations, many of whom were also adversely affected. So, so I've never actually come to a firm opinion myself as to, well, if I was in, in charge, how would I have designed it? Uh, I have focused more in my writing about, I guess you would call it the economic consequences of the shutdown and what is the cost benefit trade offer? When do you open up the economy? Uh, because there is actually a genuine cost benefit trade off. You open up the economy, more people might get sick, uh, more people might die. But on the other hand, if you keep the economy shut down, that also has negative health consequences in terms of uh, well-being and life expectancy and things like that. So, so I've been trying to educate policymakers on that specific issue. That's where I've always felt I had a, uh, had a comparative advantage or a niche to, to uh, fill on this debate. Sure. No, that's that's great. Well, turning to a couple of, of different things, and I was taking furious notes while you were talking with Ron about different subjects that popped into my head based on that. And one of you talked had a great conversation about all different tax policy, but to uh, to steal a phrase and, and manipulate it from James James Carville, is it really the spending stupid? Is it ultimately come down to it's really the the, the size and scope of government that, that's the problem, and then taxation that just becomes the, the the result of that? There are two very important fiscal policy numbers, and actually, before I even say those. Let's, let's stipulate that fiscal policy isn't the be-all and end-all in terms of economic policy. There's trade policy, there's regulatory policy, there's monetary policy, uh, there's quality of governance, things like rule of law. So lots of things go into the recipe for what makes a healthy, vibrant economy. Uh, however, let's now just look specifically at fiscal policy. In my mind, there are two very important things to focus on. What is the overall spending burden of the government and what is the financing mechanism for the government? In other words, how is the tax code designed? Because you can collect $100 billion of tax in a very damaging way or in a mildly damaging way, sort of the difference between using, say, a, a flat tax versus our complicated, onerous uh, internal revenue code that we have right now. The least important fiscal number, or at least way down at the bottom, would be the deficit. Now, deficits to me are the symptom. The underlying problem is a government that is too big. But I don't ever go to sleep at night worrying about deficits. I don't wake up in the morning worried about deficits. I view deficits as a symptom of the thing that I do worry about, which is government growing too fast, getting too big. Now, I don't want to completely dismiss the notion that deficits matter. 
If you look at uh, a country like Greece, why did Greece get in trouble? Greece got in trouble because their government got so big. Again, the spending was the driving factor, but their the spending got so big and the debt levels got so high and their economy was so stagnant that what happened? The investors of the world looked at Greece and said, you know what? I'm not so sure that if we lend Greece money, they're going to pay us back as promised. That's, that's in effect what a fiscal crisis is. A fiscal crisis simply occurs when investors don't trust to lend money to a government. Uh, it's happened with Argentina, it's happened with Zimbabwe, it's happened to governments all over the world. Uh, and ultimately, if we continue down the path we're on, with of course all the coronavirus spending, uh, you know, pushing us farther down the path at a faster rate, sooner or later, we'll have our Greek style fiscal crisis. So deficits can matter, but the key thing to realize is that spending is the real underlying problem. So if we got spending under control and we had a tax system that wasn't so harsh to growth, we could have a perfectly reasonable growing economy. And, and would it be good if we had a balanced budget? Sure, it would be good. But the main thing to focus on when you're looking at deficits and debt is what is debt as a share of GDP? And as long as the, gov as long as the private sector is growing faster than the debt, the debt is shrinking as a share of GDP. So you don't even need really to pay off your debt. You just need to make sure that it's not growing at some exorbitant rate well above the growth of the private sector of your economy. But it, that brings us back to the spending issue. How do you make sure you achieve that? By having government, the spending burden, grow slower than the rate of growth of the economy's productive sector. And, and one way that has been proposed by some libertarians, including Charles Murray and others, is the universal basic income. And similar to the conversation that you were having with Ron, where, you know, if you could wave the magic wand and which tax policy would you put in place? And you gave the great answer about only if with a constitutional amendment. And I think that Charles Murray also says, hey, the UBI would be how it would go, but a constitutional amendment would have to be passed to remove all other uh, spending mechanisms and, and welfare states. What are, your, what are your thoughts on UBI? I'm not a fan of UBI. Now, what Charles Murray has put together is, is it's comprehensive, it's elegant, it's well thought out. Uh, uh, he is trying to address a real problem, which is that our current welfare state penalizes uh, poor people. It keeps them trapped in dependency. It's very expensive for taxpayers. It, it basically is the excuse to have a giant public sector bureaucracy in different states and Washington to, to administer and manage it. Uh, you know, in, in what Walter Williams calls the poverty pimps. Uh, so, so our current welfare system, our current system of income redistribution is horrible. There's no question about it. Uh, but, but I just, well, I'll, I'll simply say what I said when Andrew Yang ran for president this year uh, and made universal basic income the cornerstone of his campaign. It's the same thing I say also about a value-added tax. I don't trust politicians. And so even though uh, uh, Charles Murray has a great way of doing it, uh, Andrew Yang didn't have a great way of doing it. And even during his own campaign, he basically backtracked on the notion that this was going to replace other forms of spending. So I think when push comes to shove and when the dust settles and whatever other metaphors you can throw in there, universal basic income would just be an excuse to create a new entitlement program. And I don't want that. I would much rather focus on something that I think is at least plausible, which is to get Washington out of the business of income redistribution. 
uh, do what we did uh, under Bill Clinton in the 1990s with welfare reform, uh, where you kick a program down to the state level. At the beginning of the process, you say, here's a pile of money, uh, in effect, the current amount of spending that they were doing. We're going to give you this money and we'll let it grow a little bit every year. But by and large, in the future, you on the state level, you're responsible for this. In my dream world, I'd want to eventually phase those block grants down to zero and have states responsible for both raising and spending any income redistribution money. Uh, but I think decentralization uh, is a much better approach than universal basic income. And oh, by the way, uh, when Switzerland, uh, they had a big vote, I think in 2016 or 2015, on a universal basic income. And I went over and I spoke against it. And the voters of Switzerland, uh, I'd like to say it's because of me, but I'm sure it wasn't, the voters of Switzerland voted 78% against universal basic income. So the Swiss people are very rational on this issue. And uh, on the, the subject of not trusting politicians, and I noticed on your website, you have a couple of pages that are specifically branded as libertarian. I'm not sure whether you're a small L libertarian or a capital L libertarian. I happen to, to be both. Um, do you have any, and, but, and, I see, and I don't believe you've written anything on him. What are your thoughts on uh, Justin Amash potentially declaring for the LP candidacy as president? Well, I'm definitely a small L libertarian in the sense that philosophically, I'm a, I believe in small government. I don't want government trying to regulate people's private behavior. If you want to, I think smoking is probably not a very smart thing to do, but if you want to smoke as an adult, I don't think uh, government at any level should be trying to harass you for that. Uh, so I'm definitely libertarian philosophically. Uh, and uh, many times in the past, I have found the libertarian option to be the uh, only, uh, only honorable decision when in a voting booth. However, I got into the world of public policy because of Ronald Reagan. And so if Republicans uh, ever had a genuine small government, uh, free market oriented uh, uh, presidential candidate, yeah, I wouldn't hesitate to vote uh, for a Republican. Uh, there's probably no question that uh, come November, uh, the only small government candidate that will be on the ballot, uh, at least in terms of someone potentially getting more than uh, 10 votes will be Justin Amash. Yep, I well, hope so because he first first has to win the the LP nomination uh, at at convention coming up uh, in a couple of months. But that that will be interesting to see. Uh, anyway, Dan, uh, before we we go, I, Ron will take you the rest of the way home. I want to say thank you for uh, being here. You were a, a terrific guest. But right now we have a, a break coming up. I want to say that if you want to get a hold of Ron or me, you can send an email to asktsoe at verisage.com. Also, the rate this podcast slash TSOE will take you out to a place where you can do the currency of podcasting, which is giving us a rating. And please also, if you could, spend a few minutes and write a comment. We love to read them on the air. But right now, a word from our sponsor and my employer, Sage. Follow us on Twitter at VoiceAmericaTRN. Get the lowdown on guests, new shows, and your favorites. That's VoiceAmericaTRN. Sage provides accountants with compliance, reporting, and analytic solutions to do more for their clients. These solutions include education programs such as the Sage Accountants Network Client Advisory Service Program. This program delivers the tools to create, package, price, market, and deliver additional services to clients, increasing your profitability and delivering more value to your clients. Let Sage help you grow your business by visiting sageaccountantsnetwork.com.
Have you ever been so annoyed by a commercial for a $5 ebook that you were willing to pay $10 to never hear it again? I sure have. Hello, I'm Greg Kite. Over the last several years, you've come to hate me, and I hate me too. By now, you know that for $5, you can get a copy of Ron and Ed's book. What you might not know is, for twice that much every month for forever, you can stop hearing me plug Ron and Ed's book, which totally makes sense, like the Diamond Water Paradox. Go to patreon.com slash TSOE and subscribe today. Please, for the love of God, make it stop! When it comes to business, you'll find the experts here. Voice America Business Network. You are tuned into The Soul of Enterprise with Ron Baker and Ed Klass. To find out more about our show, visit us on the web at thesoulofenterprise.com. You can also chat with us on Twitter using hashtag AskTSOE. Now, back to The Soul of Enterprise. Welcome back, everybody. We're here with the economist Dan Mitchell, tax expert. And Dan, I know you have a worldwide grasp of tax policy, and I'd love your opinion about how this country should go about privatizing Social Security. Which model works? Is it Chile's? Is it Singapore? Is it Great Britain? How should we deal with the Social Security crisis? There are three models out there. The Singapore model is definitely better than what we have, but it's my least favorite because, in effect, you're giving money to the government into what's called a central provident fund. The government is then in charge of investing it, but it really just gets used for infrastructure, if I understand correctly. And then the government, in effect, gives you a predetermined rate of return for it. Uh, so it's not genuine funded. Uh, well, it is funded, uh, unlike our pay-as-you-go social security system, but, but it's not privately controlled. I'll put it that way. So Singapore, better than us, but not my first choice. The other two models out there, I guess you could, for reasons of simplicity, let's call the Australian model and the Chilean model. They're both very good. The Chilean model is sort of a universal IRA approach, and the Australian model is sort of a universal 401k approach. Uh, now, both of those descriptions uh, are, are overly uh, strict because there's elements of 401k in the Chilean system, and there's elements of IRA in the uh, in the Australian system, but that's sort of the simple way to think about them both. Uh, you're in a individual account uh, through your place of work in Australia, and you're choosing from approved pension funds, uh, uh, regardless of where you work, if you're in Chile. But both systems, both systems, you're putting private money into privately administered funds that are then privately invested uh, and and it's a it's a huge win-win. I mean, Chile is an amazing success story, uh, coming from uh, you know absolute economic misery, one of the poorer countries of Latin America when they first put this system in. Uh, but combined with other reforms, because of course no single economic reform is ever the silver bullet, but the, the pension reform was a great piece of an overall economic reform agenda that has now made Chile by far the richest country in Latin America. And Australia, uh, 
Uh, I actually did my PhD dissertation on Australia's private system called superannuation. So, so I could I could bore you to tears talking for an hour about what Australia did. Uh, but here's the number I use when I'm talking to an American audience. If you look at the current unfunded liability of America's social security system, adjusted for inflation, deficits over the next 75 years are equivalent to 47 trillion dollars, which is more than 200% of current GDP. In Australia, by contrast, they don't have that unfunded liability. Instead, they have private pension savings of about 100% of GDP. So dramatically different results. Australia has a great system compared to the US system, but the Chilean model is also great. And there are about 30 countries around the world that have done some degree of private pension savings instead of government pay-as-you-go system, including, by the way, places like uh, the, the Netherlands, like Sweden, like Switzerland, uh, even in some of the European welfare states, they've at least partially uh, shifted to a, to systems based on private savings rather than government pay-as-you-go promises. And boy, we need to do something like that in the U.S. Although I will say, not not to give you even worse news, <laughs> Social Security, big problem. Medicare and Medicaid, giant problems in Bigger, terms of long-run yeah. unfunded liability. So yes, we obviously desperately need to fix Social Security, but oh boy, that's like that's like dealing with a broken leg. Uh, and these other entitlement programs are like coronavirus. Right. So you're saying you'll 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 be the Yankees pitcher before we we even attempt to fix Social Security or Medicare. What's really sad is we had a genuine chance during the Clinton years to fix Social Security. Bill Clinton actually understood the issue and was moving in the direction of doing the right thing with individual accounts. And the Monica Lewinsky scandal basically blew that up because then Washington all of a sudden went partisan overnight. And so that was the most expensive sex scandal in the history of the world. It probably cost the United States economy trillions of dollars of long run wealth because it blocked us from getting genuine social security reform. That's a good point. He could have done it too because he was a Democrat. It probably would have gone down better than when Bush tried it. <laughs> well, it was very frustrating. You know, but Bush's people had their hearts in the right place, but they literally never sent a proposal to Capitol Hill. And, and so you basically had Capitol Hill saying, uh, well, what do you want us to do? And the Bush administration say, well, you guys go first. But they didn't think that the Bush administration was uh, going to put any real political capital into it. And so the whole thing just fell apart. So, so yes, I mean, Bush had some, some, he was semi-courageous about it, but he never came through with a proposal that could have been used to jumpstart legislation. So, so I do, I'm a little bit disappointed. Of course, there was a lot to be disappointed about from a libertarian perspective with the Bush years. And that was a great missed opportunity. Right. I, I know you're a big opponent of the tax harmonization schemes of the of the EU and the UN and all that. And, you know, this I, this notion of harmful tax competition, which is just like the biggest oxymoron. Uh, where do you stand on the EU in general? And I guess this kind of ties into Brexit, too. I would imagine you were for Brexit. Is that safe to say? I was a passionate Brexit supporter. As a matter of fact, last December, I flew over to England so I could be there for the election uh, because I wanted to go in 2016. I wanted to fly to London for the Brexit vote. 
but I chickened out because I thought, oh, it's going to lose and I'll be, just be so disappointed and I'll have blown a bunch of money to go over to London. Uh, and so I thought, okay, well, you know, the Brexit vote succeeded. Then, of course, we had this lengthy process where the then Prime Minister, Theresa May, kept bumbling and tried to do a Brexit in name only. Uh, she eventually got kicked out. Boris Johnson took over. But obviously, Brexit wasn't going to happen unless you had a new election to replace all the the wet Tories, you know, the, the, the anti-Brexit Tories who were part of the establishment. And so I decided, OK, I'm going to bite the bullet. I flew over to London last December, and that was... It rivaled only the joy I felt on election night in 1980 when uh, when Ronald Reagan became president. Uh, it was a, it was a great feeling to be there to see the the British people vote for independence from this centralizing pro harmonization uh, status bureaucracy in Brussels. And by the way, I say that as someone who thinks that if you're a relatively poor country like Kosovo, yes, by all means, join the European Union. The European Union isn't all bad. It, it's a, it's sort of it's very good on protectionism issues, at least internally in Europe. It's very good on trying to block subsidies, at least internally in Europe. So I'm not saying the EU is all bad, but if you're a country like the United Kingdom, the EU is definitely a negative thing. It's dragging you down, and ultimately, of course, with all the fiscal problems with the European welfare states, uh, and of course, it's all augmented by the coronavirus crisis now. The European Union eventually is going to degenerate into a transfer union. And the last thing you want to do in a transfer union is to be the net payer. So not only was it good for the United Kingdom to leave, but ultimately I think it would be smart for the Netherlands, for Sweden, for other countries to leave as well. Maybe they should form a – they should go back to what the European Union was originally designed to be, which is simply a free trade pact. And so I think the smart countries uh, in Europe – should recreate a different version of the European Union, get rid of all that bureaucracy in Brussels, or, or, or let France and Italy and, and Spain and Greece have the bureaucracy if they want to have a sinking ship. Right. No, I couldn't agree more. You're so right. I, I, I'm just such a pessimist with respect to the EU. It is just a meta mess, I mean, with their regulations. And just I just can't imagine a country like Great Britain transferring their sovereignty to them. Dan, should we be worried about inequality or poverty? If you're a good person, you should worry about poverty. If you want to divide and, uh, and create conflict in a country, then worry about equality. Uh, and this is a critical thing because uh, a lot of my friends on the left, uh, I will sometimes present data to them showing, okay, here are countries that don't worry about equality, but they have free markets and small government, and look at how everyone winds up better off over time. On the other hand, look at countries that are consumed by class warfare and redistribution. Uh, you know, maybe they don't have very, you know, their, their equality numbers or inequality numbers might be better, uh, but everyone's poorer. Right. And so what is it that you want? And I try to, I try to get them to understand, look, if you, if you really care about poor people, don't you simply want poor people to have more money? And they'll sort of say, yeah, I guess so. And then I, I try to beat them over the head and say, well, by all means, then you should be supporting limited government, free markets and low taxes. Uh, but for some reason, there's like a mental block or maybe there's not a mental block. Maybe they just realize that they'd have to give up their entire agenda. If, if the goal was simply making poor people better off, you shouldn't worry about inequality at all. You should worry about economic growth and poverty reduction. 
Uh, And that's what disappoints me so much about bureaucracies like the IMF. There are smart people at the IMF, but because there's a political agenda opposed by the governments that control the IMF, the IMF winds up in in terms of actual policy advice, always proposing poisonous uh, anti-growth policies. Dan, we're going to have to leave it there because we're at the end of time. So, but thank you so much for appearing on the Soul of Enterprise. It was, it was a great conversation. Ed, what do we have next week? Uh, next week, Ron, we are talking to columnist Adam Davidson. See you in 167 hours. This has been the Soul of Enterprise, business in the knowledge economy, sponsored by Sage, transforming the way people think and work so their organizations can thrive. Join us next week on Friday at 4 p.m. Eastern. That's 1 p.m. Pacific. In the meantime, please do visit us at our website, www.thesoulofenterprise.com. 